This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jezer on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jezer. Welcome back to another week, another episode of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always great to be with you. If you're new, welcome to the program. I hope you get a dose of uh, reality from an American Muslim patriot, somebody who not only loves this country, loves America, but feels it is our responsibility as Muslims to lead the efforts at reform. And week to week here, I bring you some of the battlefronts of ideas, try to breach that chasm between the East and the West, or more appropriately, between freedom and Islamism or the theocratic state, and that within the House of Islam is a battle for the soul of Islam that I hope we can tip towards reform. A lot going on politically, and, you know, I saw a story this week that I thought would be good to share with my listeners, and in it... There are a lot of elements. You know, we talk about things from an American ethnocentric perspective quite a bit. Europe talks about its problems, uh, the French, the German, and uh, now with uh, Brexit, uh, there's a question of whether the U.K. will be more isolated in its approach to national security. But a group of Muslim men this week outside Rome's Colosseum, representing the Italian Muslim community, signed a pact with the Italian government earlier this week, and they signed it to, quote, reject all forms of violence and terrorism, unquote. And they promised to have prayers in the mosques of Italy be held in Italian. Now, the Italian Muslim community is not small. We're talking 1.6 million, almost 4% of the Italian population. That's not low, but it's also not the highest in the European population. But what's interesting is that there are only eight mosques in all of Italy. There are a lot of, there are hundreds and hundreds, if not over a thousand prayer rooms or prayer halls, but they just don't have the mosques. And we can talk about it. Uh, At the end of the day, there are those who say, well, Italy's positioning on a number of things that I would like to talk to you about then because it's not had any recent or or actually hardly any attacks of Islamist-inspired terrorism must make its approach to its Muslims than the most exemplary. And there's been some attention now back to Italy in that the recent attacks in, in Germany at the Christmas market done by a Tunisian by the name of Amri, was in an Italian prison for four years, and a lot of evidence now points to the fact that he was 
most likely radicalized during that imprisonment. But, as is typical for a lot of the Muslims that, remember, in order to be Italian citizen, they rarely have immigrants become citizens. You have to be either an Italian family or the children of an Italian family. So uh, while they have more recently in the last 10 years almost become open borders, the acceptance of new citizens who are immigrants is far, far more difficult than we understand it to be in America. And that's important to what I was just saying because ultimately they're, you can't deport citizens, but if they're not citizens on green cards or or whatever the immigrant status may be, it's a lot easier to deport Islamists or those thought to be radical. They don't have the same rights of citizens. And thus, their solution has been to deport many of the families that are felt to be sympathizers with ISIS. Italy has had, I think, somewhere over 110 fighters, foreign jihadists that have come from Italy to go fight in Syria and in other jihads. But ultimately, the process for them was easier, and Amri was one of those. He got out of prison, and I believe a few days later, found himself deported. Now, their version of compassionate deportation is that they not be deported to places in which they would be tortured. So Amri was deported into Europe. I don't know where he went. Obviously, we then the story ended in that he ended up going to Germany and committing his act of vehicular jihad. Now this document that the Muslim community signed in Italy goes on. It says, It is a very important document which concerns that the present and future of our country through interreligious dialogue, starting from a basic principle. We may have different religions, but we are all Italian said Interior Minister Marco Minetti. He then added, one of the essential points is that all signatories have committed to reject all forms of violence and terrorism. Community groups representing almost 70% of Italy's Muslims pledged to hold Friday prayers in their mosques in Italian or at least have them translated. So you see they're linking in integration or even call it assimilation to the language, to the customs of the community there, to counter-radicalization. And remember, Italy is not a absent from attacks by the Islamist radicals, by the jihadists. You know, there are those who say, oh, don't poke ISIS, don't offend them because then the, ra- the, the wrath of Islamism will come upon you and the jihadists will focus their propaganda on you. Well, remember Italy in a, a summer magazine of Dabik, the ISIS PDF that gets put out across the Internet, had a front picture in which they called it Rum. And they called for uh, jihadists to attack the cradle of Christian civilization in Rome. The spokesperson for ISIS, Muhammad al-Adnani, proclaimed that the group would one day conquer Rome, break your crosses, and enslave your women. 
The story went on to encourage jihadi sympathizers to attack Westerners. So there have been many attacks in the West, including France, Denmark, Germany, the UK, Belgium, Tunisia, Australia, Canada, and the US, but yet no attacks in Italy. Is it their citizenship rules? Is it the deportation? Is it the integration? Is it this pact this week that was signed? I think from a sense, and I, this is the, the crux of what I believe to be the message that's important to get from this, is that their whack-a-mole program is probably a bit more advanced than others. I think that all these things put together have protected them, but I believe it's an illusion of security. My sense is, as many security analysts, including Lorenzo Vedino, who's an expert at Georgetown but spent a significant amount of time in Italy, will tell you that you never know when the next attack could happen. And as he said to the media, it could happen tomorrow in Italy. The propaganda efforts by ISIS have lagged behind in Italy itself, if you will, but yet they use the imagery of Rome and others to radicalize Muslims against Christendom as they be, as they believe their caliphate will be the center of Islam, the house of Islam or the land of Islam, if you will. Ultimately, the numbers of terror attacks, I believe, have to do with, if you look at the numbers and research, is how Italy has lagged behind in its move and and integration of numbers into Italy. Yes, there is 1.6 million, but it has lagged behind into bringing those communities in. So possibly it may be headed in a trajectory to the same threat that existed in Germany and the UK. And now many may say, oh, that means Jasser is saying don't allow immigrants in. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm the son of immigrants, I believe that America's narrative of being an idea for immigrants who want freedom is the primary solution to Islamism, to the Islamic theocracy. But it has to be done right. It has to be done about ideas. Last year, Opria in The Federalist had had a nice write-up about how museum trips will not keep European teens from Islamism. The Italian government, in its effort to integrate it's beginning to segregate Muslim immigrants, said that it would give them $500 to spend, the equivalent of $500 to spend on museum trips. It gave them a voucher to use on concerts, movies, and museums. Their premise, that the Italian government felt that cultural exposure can counter Islamic terrorism. It may be well-intentioned, to, in an effort to wage the ideological war against Islamism. But I agree with Opria that it probably would not work. Yes, they want them to embrace Western culture. And this program was set to cost into 2017 $300 million. They started the program after the attacks in Paris, which then had second attacks in Belgium three months later. 
and the re- the reality is that often this Western culture, which is much more free living, sexual, and other areas that are offensive to Islamist theocrats, may push them to turn to Islamic extremism. Sayyid Qutb, in fact, the font, the father, the founding father of the Muslim Brotherhood ideology and political Islam in the 50s and 60s, spent time as an exchange student in the U.S. and his experience of what he called the hedonism of the land outside of the land of Islam and the land of war was what he used to indict the West. And I think the Federalist write-up is correct that it is the welfare state that is the problem. It is those who come to seek economic independence, ideological freedom, critical thinking that will insulate themselves and protect themselves against radicalization while those individuals who come and become part of the welfare nanny state only to hate the West, spread their anti-Semitism and not relook at their ideas when they become independent but rather dependent is the primary problem or one of the problems that then allows the theocratic ideals to settle in. When we come back, let's continue to look at Italy and what are some of the lessons that I think may have serendipitously protected them, but not in a way of liberty or freedom, and that still short-term solutions are whack-a-mole. Long-term solutions are what we're looking for here on Reform This, and I'll be right back. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jezer. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Zudi Jasser back on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. And we were talking about short-term, long-term solutions, encountering radical Islamism and helping integrate those immigrants who are in our communities, in our nations. And I think the Italian example is full of things of of really what not to do. And this is why the narrative that we are simply fighting terrorism, in that more attacks or less attacks somehow is a barometer of success is just not the barometer we should use. The barometer should be not only terror attacks and numbers, since Italians would say, oh, they haven't had any, so therefore they must be the best at counterterrorism. No. Look at domestic violence within immigrant communities. Honor violence. Honor abuse. Honor killing. Look at the messaging from the pulpits. Is it pro-Italian, pro-Western? Is it in Italian, as 
their document this week that they signed promised they would do. That is a positive sign. And what is their Italian nationalism? Are they embracing free markets? Are they embracing not only integration ideologically, but a new interpretation of Islam that is at home with a secular Western society versus an attempt to apologize for a Sharia state? Culture is central. We talked on this program. One of my podcasts a couple weeks ago was on how culture eats strategy for breakfast. It is all about culture. And I would tell you, if you look at the numbers, there's only eight official mosques in Italy. It is extremely problematic that those mosques are primarily Saudi and Qatari influenced and funded. Those are not pro-Italian messages being piped in with the funnel of money from those. But their obstruction of mosques and that funding has preserved them also. Because most of the prayer centers, there's hundreds and hundreds, I think there's almost a thousand, which are simply prayer rooms or corners of houses are obviously not going to be funded through Petro-Islam, which is Wahhabi or Islamist, as the Qataris are Brotherhood-inspired and the Saudis are Wahhabi-inspired, and both are a Salafi-Jihadi mix. But again, I can't say this emphatically enough. The whack-a-mole prevention of Islamist infiltration is a short-term solution. To do it autocratically, to prevent the expression of a form of Islam or any form of Islam, might be short-term solution and prevention for Italy or America or France or Germany. But in the long term, unless there is a critical analysis and of exposure of theocratic Islam versus liberal and Western modern Islam, this battle will be delayed, the can will be kicked down the road, and slowly as we see the numbers and how young the Muslim population is in Italy, you'll realize that perhaps it's just a matter of time until more radicalization happens. And radicalization, let's define that. It's not only defined by acts of terror that are sympathized with, it's defined as a countenance of misogyny, of honor violence. It's defined as anti-Semitism, a hate for Israel, a hate for the West. It's defined as a disgust for interfaith community and a, a, a disbelief in the equality of all under law, under God, and rather a belief in the supremacism of any Sharia state a belief that if Muslims are a majority, it should be run by an Islamic state. So, now, tickets to movies, museums, that's not going to work. Waste of $300 million from the Italian community. And many Islamist groups as the Daily Beast reports on Italy, have been driven underground. And while some would say, well, the ends justifies the means, 
if we drive the Islamists underground, at least they're not overground and they're not going to be organizing terror attacks. I couldn't disagree more. I think that the antiseptic of sunlight is necessary. Neo-Nazi groups, I believe, are more effectively countered publicly than they are privately. Because you don't even know where they exist when you don't give them the freedom to express their views publicly now. Is it toxic? Is it virulent? It is. And as long as they're not preaching violence, you can counter it. Once they preach violence, even in America, that's not protected speech. Barbie Nadeau, a year ago in the Daily Beast, talked about Italy's drive to push Muslims underground. And it had a plan to close hundreds of these prayer centers, not mosques. Remember, there were only eight mosques, but hundreds of the prayer centers they moved to close. In December 2015, the Italian Interior Minister said that we are going to close the clandestine and unregulated spots, not to hamper the religion, but so that it can be practiced in a more orderly manner. Well, that sounds like significant governmental control of religious practice, and I do not believe that that will ultimately counter political Islam, but rather push it underground. He said that unregistered mosques constitute a gray zone and that while the government had only approved of whatever that limited number is, four or eight mosques, he said that the unregulated garage mosques, as they were called, unregistered mosques constitute a gray zone. He said there are many moderate and traditional Muslims there But this is where the inspiration to fundamentalism is born. That they then communicate on the internet and only in Arabic. And he noted, 30 of the known mosques in Rome will be among those shut down. So the issue is, is that, is this the best way? If those mosques were violent, preaching uh, attacks upon Italian citizens then they should certainly be shut down or the imams should be arrested. If they had arms, certainly they should be shut down. We saw a few of the mosques in France were harboring arms and they were shut down, but there were others that weren't in the wake of the Paris attacks that were also shut down. 32% of foreigners in Italy are Muslim. There are 1.6 million Muslims, but only... 50,000 Italian citizens are Muslim. So you're talking about 1.5 million of the Muslims in, in Italy not being citizens, but rather simply foreigners. More than half of the Muslims live in the north of the country, and the largest group of them living in Milan. And at the time, in two thousand, late 2015, 2016, Alfano, the interior minister, said that Italy was going to dedicate more than a billion dollars to enhance security, hiring more Arab translators to help with telephone and internet surveillance, 
as they shuttered some of the mosques that were security threats. As we end this discussion, you know, I have to tell you, I think Europe is in a much larger existential crisis than America is. And while we see a lot of the policies now talking, we've talked here last few weeks about this so-called ban, which was simply a pause. Yes, there was some uh, lack of sophistication in the implementation and the communication of what the Trump administration was trying to do. But in the end, it's a recalibration of how to do immigration. It's a recalibration of how to welcome immigrants, refugees, without just saying no, but also without blindly saying yes, in that there needs to be a relook at how we vet. And hopefully it was just a pause. If they do a bait and switch and make it into a simple absolute no for a long time, then I will be the first to be critical because it's not just about humanitarian efforts. It is about winning this war. A quarter of the world's population is Muslim. The best antidote to theocratic statism or Islamism is free secular liberal statism and our belief that our nation state is united, blind to religion, blind to nation of origin, but united under one law, under one constitution and bill of rights, together in the protection of all under God, with a separation of powers and a legal system based in reason. That is what we should teach our Muslim kids to be for. It's not only to be against terrorism, it's not only to do their sermons in Italian or or English, but it is to teach them to be for the social contract that is American nationalism or Italian nationalism about freedom and liberty. The numbers, according to Pew, of Muslims in EU countries, 7.5% in France, almost 5% in the UK, almost 6% in Germany. 4.7 million in Germany, 4.7 million in France, almost 3 million in the UK. These numbers are young populations that are growing. And the threat from terrorism, violent, incident-wise, may not be that significant for those who want to play with numbers. But on the scheme of things, it's the tip of the iceberg to a global conflict, a conflict where in Muslim-majority countries they're seizing through conflicts against tyranny, oppression, dictatorship, and the Arab awakening. And in the West, the Islamists are trying to exert an isolationist flow in the West so that the Arab awakening is left to the Islamists and they push back against Western secular ideals while those of us who believe in freedom have been all too silent. And this laboratory of freedom that we live in in the West is the place to have this debate, is the place to build and translate Jefferson's papers on freedom, Locke, Rousseau, Voltaire, all the Western thinkers that we can begin to not only learn from but help the Arab awakening transform an identification of being Muslim to not being incompatible with being Italian or American first. 
and that we would believe in this legal system, whether it's 1% Muslim, 10% Muslim, or 60% Muslim. Because right now the Islamists teach them at best to be schizophrenic, where they follow the laws of the land in the West, but in Muslim countries they do not. Reform has to attack this. Reform and counterterrorism from the governments dumping billions into programs should be about advancing what we are for, not only what we are against in these communities. And it can't be done autocratically. So the Italians and this declaration of anti-terrorism that they signed, look at our declaration of the Muslim Reform Movement. It talks about what we are for, not only what we are against. That's the only solution long-term, and it needs to become part of deep counterterrorism, counter-radicalization programs. We need to redefine what radicalization is. It applies to all different aspects of the front line, the fault lines between Islamist ideas and Western ideas. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss Pat and Stu. So I search for Domino's on my phone. What would you think should happen? Maybe the app that I installed on the phone named Domino's should pop up? No, no. I've got links to other apps where I can play Domino's. I have the person who's in my contacts list who's named Domino. God forbid I can find the stupid apps. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser, and welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's great to be with you, and thank you for staying with me, and I hope you continue to get material here that you don't get elsewhere, and you know, I have to tell you, there's a lot to talk about, but there's something that interestingly continues to crop up on my social media, be it on Facebook at MZ Jasser or my public page at MZUDI Jasser, M-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, or on my Twitter feed, Dr. Zudi Jasser. A question recurrently is said often sarcastically or, or sort of uh, thrown at me as if there's no answer, which is, a, a support of uh, basically um, my faith, a support of uh, what I'm trying to do to reform, uh, but ultimately a frustration that you cannot reform Islam unless you reform the narrative, the history of the Prophet Muhammad. And thus there's a belief there that the question is presented that uh, ultimately the, the narrative, the history, the wars, the battles... The behavior of the Prophet Muhammad is central to reform and that somehow I and other Muslims that agree with me need to rewrite history in order for reform to be genuine. And uh, I wanted to spend some time on this because I hope that those of you, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim who follow this, look at there are some central aspects to the 
story of Islam. And I've recognized that there are versions of Islam out there that are not the Islam that we're trying to reform. Uh, we are trying to reform Muslim interpretations of our faith and our scripture. We are trying to reform into a 21st century application of the core principles of our faith. At least those of us that are not Islamists, those of us that reject Salafi jihadism. But how do you divorce yourselves from a narrative of what the Prophet Muhammad did when he was first revealed the message in 610 CE until the time of his death in 633 CE? So, I, I think that one of the central central components of any successful Reformation movement is to understand what is immutable and what is not. And to understand the core parts of the faith of what we believe to be Islam and what is not. And I can tell you, at least this is my own humble opinion, that to me as a Muslim, the part that's fixed in Islam is the Arabic scripture of the Qur'an. In Arabic, Qur'an means recitation. It means God's word that as it was recited to the Prophet Muhammad. And it was recited through the angel Gabriel who brought down various verses and passages, each one after the other over that 23-year period of time. And we believe it was then memorized and subsequently written down and verified through those who had memorized it and are called in Arabic hafizin or hafiz or those who had memorized the Quranic scripture. And that's how it was maintained and validated and authenticated. And that's why if you pick up an Arabic Quran around the world, every one of them has the same chapters and same scripture to the comma. Now, the human interpretation of it is human. The translations that you read in English, that you read in other languages, is human. And even the understanding of what the Arabic words mean is human. But to Muslims, the only thing that we pretty much agree on is that the Quranic script of the Quran, the Arabic script of the Quran is immutable. It is God's word. So reform is about how you interpret them. Reform is separating history from religion. Reform is separating what we believe applied to the 7th century and the time of the Prophet Muhammad to what we believe applies today. Reform is the belief of what the Prophet Muhammad would do today versus what he would do at the time of the 7th century. But reform is not. Let's talk about what it's not. I don't see reform as being an argument that somehow the Prophet Muhammad was not moral or that he did not have appropriate character. The narratives, the stories of what are read in the hadith, Hadith in Arabic means the sayings and the narratives of the Prophet Muhammad. But those are not authenticated. 
For the most part, many of them are not. Some are. There's debate, controversy about what is perceived as authenticated hadith, sirah, sirah meaning stories of the Prophet. And much of what's considered law in Islam, jurisprudential Islam or Sharia, actually comes from Sharia, doesn't come from an hadith, doesn't come from Quran. So the jihadists, the Salafists, many other strains of Islamic fundamentalists will use their narratives of the Prophet Muhammad as gleaned from certain hadith in order to radicalize, in order to legitimize their interpretation. And yes, they use Sahih Bukhari. Yes, they use various large, voluminous texts that have been transmitted over time through oral tradition. But again, that is one thing. And we can talk about how reformist Muslims can deal with narratives that are misogynist, with narratives that talk about slavery, that talk about the death of apostates, that say, as the Hamas doctrine says, kill a Jew behind every stone. That is in what is thought to be hadith. And I, as a, a devout Sunni Muslim, would say that that is fabrication. The Prophet never said that. We can debate whether he did or not, but it is not a debate that that is not in the Quran. It is not a debate that that is not to be the, thought to be the word of God, but rather an oral tradition transcribed decades, if not centuries after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. So it is easy to understand how there could have been corruption in much of that religious teaching. So if you're going to reform, many of you that may feel that the Prophet Muhammad was a warrior, was corrupt, was a warmonger, as some describe him. I would say that, yes, he was the head of a battalion. He was the head of a military, a religious military. He fought wars. And a moderate interpretation of that, a peaceful one, is that he only fought wars that he had to, that he had no choice, that were... Wars of necessity, as all peaceful countries in history have had to fight at times when threatened. And you can dismiss that as a deep apologetic. But all I can tell you is that if at the central part of Islam, which we believe to mean submission to God, if that scripture, authenticity we believe, was granted through messages of the, April, of the angel Gabriel, we must, as Muslims, obviously believe that the Prophet Muhammad's example as a human being, he's not divine, he is a human being who had errors and who was corrected by God in the Scripture, and even in the Qur'an, he had admonishments that he received from God. But if we believe that he ultimately was an example for mankind, as an exemplar, as a leader, then it is necessary for us to understand that through the lens of a scripture in which he was chosen to transmit that as a compassionate human being. 
as a exemplar of morality, of honesty, of fatherhood, of family, of nation, of humanity. Now, that's an apologetic, but those are apologetics for Muslims. And I think the question for any reform, at least the way I approach it, is I don't question anyone's right to criticize the Prophet Muhammad, to criticize Islam, to criticize the Qur'an, even to demean it. I'm not offended. These are ideas. These are historical narratives that don't have rights. Human beings have rights. I will push back against any bigotry against Muslims, identifiable human beings that call themselves Muslims. You may criticize Muslims. You may ultimately push back against any idea that we believe to be our faith and ridicule it, do whatever you want. The Prophet Muhammad has no rights today to be guaranteed protection as an individual. In fact, I would say that cartoons or any type of condemnation that people may have is part of freedom. And I would tell you there, you know, we can talk about this in another fuller segment or episode about free speech in Islam and how I believe the Prophet's tradition, by virtue of granting that and and, and respecting it in those who were atheists who rejected God, which is a much greater sin than criticizing the Prophet Muhammad, were given that freedom to reject and criticize God and be pagans and other aspects of the diverse community of Arabia. But at the core, what I wanted to clarify and I think is important, I get asked every day, how can you reform a faith in which you don't recognize the limitations of the poor character of the Prophet Muhammad. And I would tell you, you are looking at reform from a completely non-productive way. Yes, we need to look at narratives about what happened with the tribe Ben Qurayza. We need to look at narratives about certain battles and the way the Prophet's stories are narrated in Hadith. But to you, if you're a non-Muslim, it's not a matter of debating about what the reality and the truth was in the 7th century. We can't even get right what happened in Afghanistan or in Iraq two weeks ago or in 2004 or five, let alone what happened in 620, 623 CE. But if Muslims can put together a narrative of what we believe to be verified versus unverified hadith and interpretations of our scripture and Quran that relate to various battles in a way that is that of a moral general. Yes, the Prophet Muhammad wore many hats, which I look to separate in the 21st century. I believe he would separate those hats if he were alive today. Yes, he was a general. He was the head of state. He was a messenger of God. And those hats should be separate today. But there were no countries in anywhere on the planet that separated those hats in the 7th century. So to hold 7th century Islamic history accountable to 18th century Western reform is absurd. Can Islam have this same reform and modernization? I believe so. Do we have to say the Prophet was immoral to do so? No, I don't believe so. Our generals in the West have called on war. We've dropped nuclear weapons. We've done things that I believe were very moral 
and, and tough decisions, but done because we were protecting our nation state and engaged in conflict. But those decisions were made from a lens of morality on out of necessity, but not out of corruption and immorality and evil. So I believe there are ways to look at and interpret passages in the Qur'an that can be done so through a moral lens without having to denigrate and destroy the narrative of the Prophet Muhammad, which we as Muslims believe is the messenger that God chose because of his exemplary character and the exemplary nature of his story and the lens through which he looked through life. So I would tell you that when we pray five times a day and the Prophet Muhammad's name is used as an exemplar of character and morality, it belies an understanding of sort of the foundation. No, we do not worship the Prophet Muhammad any more than we worship the Prophet Abraham or Moses or Jesus. In fact, the greatest holiday in our faith as Muslims is the holiday of sacrifice related to the Prophet Abraham. When we come back, I want to continue this conversation about can you reform Islam and also love the Prophet Muhammad as a Muslim? And how should non-Muslims look at this? This is Zudi Jasser, and I'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. It's always great to be with you. And I wanted to address today this common theme that I get about, well, reforming Islam is all well and good. Reforming Muslims especially is what I do. And our interpretations of our faith, uh, there are obviously many versions out there. But how can you do that? with the faulty example of the prophet I am told by non-Muslims. And I would tell you a couple things, and this is really what I want you to hold on to, is that, yes, it's important for non-Muslims to take sides within the House of Islam, to take sides of anti-Islamists who are against theocracy. Yes, it's important to become part of the solution, work with those Muslims that love freedom and liberty, love America, love who we are, But I would be careful in pre-patterning what you think are the fixed problems within the interpretations of Islamic doctrine and Islamic scripture. We can talk about the role of hadith or the Prophet's sayings. We can talk about and debate what is true history of the Prophet Muhammad and what is fabricated artificial history of theocrats that made things up. Remember, most of the hadith, again, I'll tell you, was not written or documented or legitimized at the earliest seven years after his death. So therefore, it's corruption, it's 
ease in which it was manipulated became very high. And I think many of us who, who love our faith but are reformists would tell you that the hadith is used to radicalize, to impart ideas that do not exist within the faith of Islam if you really center it on what the Qur'an, what we believe to be the word of God in Arabic, what the Qur'an teaches. But what do you do with the example of the Prophet that many Wahhabis, many Salafis use to legitimize what they do, in which he may have adjudicated things that today appear to be quite militant. And all I would tell you is look at how great men and women of history, of examples, of those who are role models for mankind are looked upon and see if you want to go through a process of modernization, if simply demonizing those individuals helps your cause. Regardless of whether you think Muslims can be reformed and their interpretation of Islam can be, also I believe that the Prophet's example will follow along with that. So it's not about what the truth or mythology is about what happened to or within the battles that are described in chapter 2, chapter 5, and chapter 9, or many of the passages that relate to the battles fought, or what the Prophet did. But again, it relates to what the Prophet would do today. And again, I would tell you, free speech, I would defend to the death anyone's ability to criticize, to ridicule the Prophet. And yes, the Islamists elevate the Prophet's example far too much as a political leader, as the leader of a state. I will tell you that I do not believe that the, the Qur'an has any direction on what government should do. It doesn't say anything about state laws. It does give many rulings on law. And it does use the word ummah, which also not only means faith community, but means state. So these things do need reform. But that reform can be done via the example of the Prophet on what he would do if he were alive today. So I do believe that reform does not have to demonize what we believe in the faith of Islam to be the preeminent example of human being who's compassionate, humanitarian, a leader, a warrior, and the founder and the messenger of our faith. So all I can tell you is for all those, every day I get a question. What do you do about what the prophet did? How do you get past that? What does Judaism do about Abraham? What does, and again, what does Christianity do about Jesus? What does any faith do about its leaders. I understand the role of Jesus in Christianity, so we won't get to that debate, but the bottom line is, is that in any of the other faiths, its founders, its leaders, its prophets, its messengers are the preeminent examples of humanity. And is it worth the time of those who don't believe those messengers to be inspired by any truth, but to be charlatans or, or mythology? whatever you believe of another, of another human being's faith, does it help to engage reformists and mandate upon them a negative perception of their leading example historically of their faith? So I would tell you, look strategically. Look at what Muslims who love their faith 
through a tough love can do towards reform. And I would tell you that any of the different pathways of reform that exist will include a passion and a belief that the example of the Prophet Muhammad, since he was the legitimate messenger of God to Muslims, is a necessary pathway. Yes, defeating Islamism will have to. And I think if you look, Mustafa Akul had a great piece in the New York Times a couple of years ago where he said, it's fascinating, this, this over-exaggeration of offense from criticism of the Prophet Muhammad is not only medieval and un-Islamic, but is part of Islamism. Their flag, the only thing that separates Muslims from Christians or Jews or other people of the book is the Prophet Muhammad, so therefore they exaggerate his position in Islam, ignoring the fact that Abraham is actually more representative of the initial founder of the one God belief in the God of Abraham, and that is our greatest holiday in Islam, is celebrating his sacrifice or attempt at a sacrifice. So, the perceptions of the way we revere a human being and respect him, its exaggeration becomes a flag, becomes a nationalism, becomes a collectivization where people cannot criticizing it. So no different than we Americans may get offended at burning the flag, Islamists get offended at cartooning and ridiculing the Prophet Muhammad. So again, I would say that getting beyond that is important to defeat Islamism. Allowing the deep critique of the Prophet and ridicule is necessary, not only for free speech, but to defeat Islamism, since that's the rallying cry of the unification of these Muslim community under one homogenous banner rather than a diverse, heterogeneous, diverse community ideologically. But, Next time somebody tells you or you hear that, well, Islam can't get anywhere in its interpretations, Muslims can't get anywhere unless they abandon their perceptions and love for the Prophet Muhammad. Yes, he was corrected. Yes, he was, we believe, to be obviously a human being and not deified. And that's why you see certain injunctions against pictures of the Prophet, though, that also is debatable. You'll see in the Sufi community in the 12th, 13th century, many pictures and paintings that included him. You see a statue at the United States Supreme Court that has a, a little model at the, on the outside of the Supreme Court that include many leaders in human law, including the Prophet Muhammad. So these things are, are different. Bottom line is, is that injunction resides in an attempt by Salafis and others to prevent deification of the Prophet and maintaining his humanization. But I think this is an extremely important point and why I spent some time talking to you about it today because we need all the help we can get. There are 1.6 billion Muslims on the planet. In future podcasts, I will again spend some time with you going over how we can contextualize, we can separate history from religion, we can look at how to reinterpret and defeat the Islamist ideology. If 
countries based on liberty and freedom existed in the 7th century, then yes, you should hold the founder of Islam, the messenger of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad accountable to that. But there weren't any. It took until the 17th, 18th century until these ideas started to become to fruition after revolutions. And the concept of rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God's what is God actually became practiced. And even then took a hundred years and more of our constitution to finally end slavery and other concepts of modernization. Freedom-loving Muslims must help America and lead the free world in the fight against Islamists. And certainly a recalibration of how we view 7th century versus how we view the 21st century is deeply important and that's what our Muslim reform movement is about. But the only way for Islamists to abort their dream of a theocracy under their version of Islam is for them to be overwhelmed with a better vision interpretation, a better interpretation of an Islam and a Qur'an based in liberty. An Islam that articulates and defends pluralism, tolerance, free speech, free markets, and all of the fruits of a free society. An Islam that rests at home with the freedoms with Americans that we claim as our birthright here and will defend at all costs, that we are willing to die only for America and not for any Islamic state or any prophet, including the Prophet Muhammad. But that would include a love for his example. It does not include reformists who would denigrate the example of the Prophet Muhammad because that would then unravel the authenticity of his scripture and a narrative that we can hand down to our children in which the Prophet, if he were alive today, would embrace in a compassionate, loving way American society, Western society, modernity, and secularism as being the most Islamic. And yes, I believe if the Prophet were alive today, he would abandon the Islamic State. And just as President Abdurrahman Wahid of Indonesia said that yes, you need an Islam, you need a state of Islam in your heart, but you do not need an Islamic State. He said that in the book, The Illusion of the Islamic State. And it is an illusion. But, as we go on from here, I hope we realize that there are important methods, important engagements that we need to do in moving, in, in, in pushing, cajoling, coercing, whichever way you want to do it, Muslims towards finally confronting Islamism. But that battle for the soul of Islam is about authenticity. That battle for the soul of Islam is about the platform of the faith. Nominal Muslims, Muslims who reject entirely the example of the Prophet or, or demean his leadership in our history and as a messenger, I don't think, and it's obvious, will not be effective. It is effective to love our faith, to believe in the scripture of the Qur'an, but to interpret it in a modern way and reform and dismiss the hadith that are illegitimate and incompatible with that interpretation. This is Zudi Jasser. Thank you for being with me on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.